we're going to finish up Exodus. Because last week, the last two weeks, we've had guest speakers. Uh, The last time we were in Leviticus, uh, it was my brother Jason's uh, lesson, and uh, we did not get to finish Exodus the week before. So we just have that last column on the Exodus page. Does anybody need an Exodus page? Great. We, uh, we covered in Exodus the, uh, the intro, the background issues, the structure and the outline, how there's really a three-part movement uh, geographically. Then there's also the content structure, how God saves Israel from Egypt, and then he gives his law, and then they build the tabernacle. Prince of Egypt was the, the main storylines uh, in the book of Exodus. And the themes talk about God as the deliverer, the covenant renewal that God offers to his people, even though they don't deserve it, and the eschatological judgment. Uh, This was even something that came up in our sermon this morning. Uh, This type of judgment that God pours out on Egypt is the type of judgment that he pours out on all wickedness from anywhere and everywhere. And of course, that, that pinnacle of that theme is when God's justice is judgment is poured out on Jesus for for his people, as as we heard this morning. Then there's the tabernacle, righteousness, and the law, and um, we'll look now at approaching the New Testament. The biblical themes that are in the book of Exodus are summarized really uh, briefly in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 5. Did we discuss this passage last time we went through this? Okay, we didn't quite get to this part. That's what I thought. Uh, approaching the New Testament, specifically 1 Corinthians 10, Paul there recalls Israel uh, in, in kind of the, the, the overarching story of Exodus. He recalls it here in these five verses. So let's read that. It's in italics there. So look there on the, the right column. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. What cloud? The pillar. That's it, yeah. God's presence leading the pillar of cloud and fire that led Israel through the wilderness. That's what Paul's talking about. And all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses. What a, what a phrase. I love that. This, this, that Israel was baptized into Moses. Guess what? We're baptized into the new Moses, into Christ, in the cloud and in the sea. Verse 3, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. And the rock is going to come back in numbers today. Nevertheless, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So here we see the theme of baptism leading to the Lord's Supper. It's this pattern. So after Israel was baptized, in the wilderness, then they ate the bread that God provided and drank from the rock where God provided. So this this bread and this drink. Now, of course, it's not specifically bread and wine, but it's bread and water. Uh, it's God's provision for His people. Uh, and then, and this is all before He gives the law, which is really important for us to know that the law does not save; it cannot save; it never did save. You are saved. You are baptized, and you take the Lord's supper. You partake of God before the law comes in. And you know the law has three uses. Have y'all heard these three uses of the law before? There's the the civil use, which is kind of for all society. I think it's important that God's law, the Ten Commandments, are upheld in society. The civil use it keeps things generally in order, so that we're not uh, running around killing each other. Uh, the law is a tutor. So when you read the law, it teaches you. It's a schoolmaster. 
that shows you how sinful you are and shows you how you need Christ. And then lastly, it is normative for believers. It tells believers how we now live in Christ. So God gave that law to his people, Israel, in the wilderness, who had been baptized and partaken of the supper, who were God's chosen people, and said, now here's how you live as God's chosen people. This is the standard for how we live. So that is the third use of the law. For believers, it is binding. There's also this theme of slavery, deliverance, law-giving. You can see this in the, the Song of Praise in Exodus 15. Uh, there's this, the, um, the pattern foreshadows the Christian life. So um, as Israel was enslaved, they were delivered and the law was given. So for us, we were enslaved to sin. We we're delivered in Christ and then the law is given. There's a judgment uh, with the plagues and the end times. I have a note here that I need to read a, a little snippet here. Uh, y'all know... Y'all know how the plagues are supposed to correlate with specific Egyptian deities? So, so God was basically, as with each plague was showing how Yahweh is superior over the God of the Nile, when the Nile turned to blood, or God is superior over uh, the God of, of the sun, over Ra, when he darkened the sky. Let me, let me read this. One can account for each of the plagues in this manner. For example, the opening plague is clearly aimed against the Nile River. The Egyptians believed that the Nile, when inundated, became a deity, personified as the god Happy. In artistic renderings, the Egyptians pictured Happy as a bearded man with female breasts and a hanging stomach, perhaps a sign of pregnancy. This hermaphroditic portrayal reflects the concept of fertility. The ancient Egyptians truly believed that the Nile and its inundations sustained Egypt, a belief that many surviving texts confirm. Therefore, when the Lord turns the Nile River to blood, he is directly attacking this deity. The fertility god Happy is no longer able to supply for the needs of the Egyptian people. This disaster taunts the Egyptian god because the true sustenance comes only from the hand of the sovereign Lord of the universe and not from a false deity. And a second example is the ancient Egyptians regarded Amun-Ra, who is personified in the sun, as the chief deity. They believed that when Amun-Ra rises in the east, he symbolizes new life and resurrection. In fact, many texts picture Amun-Ra as the creator god. However, when that god goes down in the west, he becomes an antithesis, uh, representing death in the underworld. Thus, when the Lord so wills it, as in the ninth plague, the sun is darkened, and Amun-Ra is unable to shine on his people as a symbol of life. To the contrary, he symbolizes judgment, death, hopelessness. So God is communicating great judgment against these false deities uh, in, in all these plagues and shows that his judgment is going to be against all such uh, false authorities. Uh, the greatness of God is also a, a biblical theme. The plagues highlight Yahweh's superior, superiority over Egypt, Egypt's God. So we just saw, saw that. Questions about these biblical themes that, that pop up in Exodus? Okay. Throughout the Old Testament, you see how Yahweh proves himself to be the superior God over all the other nations. And that begins even in Egypt and then continues in all the, the conquests. And we'll get to a little bit of that um, when we get to Joshua. Joshua. Okay, Christ in, it says Genesis, that's actually Exodus. I forgot to update that title there. So Christ in Exodus. Moses, the deliverer from Egypt, just like Jesus was the deliverer out of uh, bondage to sin. This is, you can see this in Matthew 1 through 7. Uh, And yeah, we'll just keep going. Passover lamb, the blood that saved from the death angel, the angel of death. I mean, that's the blood of Christ that saves his people. 
the tree that makes the water of judgment sweet life. Tree. Cursed is the one who hangs on a tree. So I went and actually looked at the Hebrew word there. Oh, what, they threw what into the water? What's that? I don't remember it at this point. I should, I should remember that. It's been a couple weeks now since I researched it. But it's the word for tree. Yeah. It's not log as it's normally translated. The tree. Cursed is the one who's hanged on the tree. That, that judgment, that tree, um, makes the water of judgment sweet for us. So uh, he's also the bread from heaven. He's the manna. He is the rock that was struck that gave water in the wilderness. He is the God who delivers his people from slavery. Of course, we see this in Jude uh, as well. He's the giver of the law, as Moses was the giver of the law. We see this as Jesus was teaching Israel, and Israel was represented in the division of the people below as, as Jesus was feeding the, the uh, multitudes. Uh, also, it's more explicit in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, how Jesus is the new lawgiver, uh, the new Moses, who on the mountain gives the, the law as Moses did to Israel. He's the bread of the presence in Exodus 25, the tabernacle where God dwells with man in Exodus 26. And you see that in John 1.14, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, dwelt among us. And he's an intercessor like, intercessor like Moses who prayed on behalf of the people. At one point, Moses asked, I don't remember if this is in Exodus or not, Moses asked if he could die on behalf of the people. And he was not granted that because there's only one who can die on behalf of his people. Um, so there's, there's kind of a conclusion to Exodus. Thoughts on Exodus? Questions before we move back into Numbers? Okay. Hopefully, yeah, hopefully it'll come back up. Uh, if, if not, I will, I'm going to make a note here to look that up. If I'm right, I'll take credit. If I'm wrong, <laughs> <laughs> I know this is this is definitely the, the teacher in me, the high school teacher, former high school teacher in me, but I think what I want to do is a quick review of some important um, book and chapters because so many of us know so many stories but don't know where to find them, and I think it's really helpful to know where to find them. So let's just do a quick review on, on Genesis and Exodus here. Um, creation. When is that? Genesis 1. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. One and t- one and two. Yeah, <laughs> the fall. Genesis three. Um, where is the proto evangelion, the first gospel? Genesis three fifteen. Yep. The flood. So close. Six through nine. That's right. Yep. Good. Um, yeah. So if you have your Genesis. Um, pages. You can, you can cheat on this one. There are four chapters related to the covenant with Abraham. One is the promise of the covenant. One is the cutting of the covenant. One is the sign of the covenant. One is the cost of the covenant. Anybody know those chapters in Genesis? 12, yes. 17, <laughs> well done. 12, 15, 17, 22. Amy's on it. Um, what's the second half of Genesis about? Yeah, it's, it's the family, Jacob and Esau. It's the sons of Jacob. It's Joseph in Egypt. So that's, that's kind of that whole story, second half of Genesis. Uh, when does Jacob bless his sons? We often go to this for uh, Judah, the promise to Judah. <laughs> you keep rounding up one, one every time, right? <laughs> 49. <laughs> that's great. 
Uh, where do you find the Exodus? Exodus what? You can look at your pages. It starts in. Um, that's that's in there. That's absolutely it. Um, the whole thing, including the the plagues and all this, is uh, Exodus five through fifteen. Five through fifteen. Exodus five through fifteen. Where is the where are the Ten Commandments given? Exodus twenty. That's that's an important one to know. Exodus twenty. All right, we'll just we'll pause there. That's good. It's good stuff to know. All right, let's move into numbers. What did you say? In the, wilderness. in the wilderness. That's what it means. Did you watch the video on it? That's great. That's so good. If you want to know what the video is, talk to Stephen afterward. <laughs> okay, it's called numbers in English because of the two censuses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Numbers actually is a very exciting book. I've always thought of it as, oh, it's that boring book with all, like chapters and chapters. And, and sure, the first four chapters are a census. How many people? It's especially the first chapters, just unbelievable amount of numbers. And it continues for a while, how to arrange the camp. Uh, this, is, this is actually preparing Israel for war. That's why they're counting all their people. They're there at the base of Mount Sinai. They're prepared to go into the land and take it. And that's why they're, they're, they're taking a census to know what's their power. They're, they're organizing themselves into groups to know how to move into the land. Um, and so that's, that's where we get the name numbers from. And then there's another census in chapter 26. And really quickly, I'll just put it this way. Each census... be. It kind of begins the two major sections of the book of Numbers. The, the book is really hard to structure because it's a combination of law and history. And so how do you really divide that up? There are a thousand different theories. But I think uh, there's a definite two-part division where the first part, the first census, that long census, <coughs> describes the first generation. The second census in chapter 26 defines the second, begins the second generation. Is uh, there more optimism about the first or the second generation? Second, Second, because the first ones weren't allowed in. Hebrew, the book is simply called In the Wilderness. That's the setting of the book. So it covers the history of Israel from the base of Mount Sinai to the edge of the promised land. Another good song for tonight would have been On Jordan's Stormy Banks I Stand. We're between those two. Maybe we... We didn't have the music from the history. Yeah, no problem. Um, That was not a critique at all. It was just that that's on the edge of the promised land on Jordan's stormy banks. I stand and cast a wishful eye to Canaan's fair and happy land where my possessions lie. And that is true of us as well as we await the promised land. Uh, Sunday school stories in the book of numbers. We've got the wilderness wanderings. This two week journey took 40 years. Grumbling Israel. When you hear people talk about grumbling Israel, it's here in the book of numbers. You hear about the 12 spies. 10 were bad and two were good. Right, that's um, that's from this from this book. Do y'all know that song? Moses strikes the rock here in Numbers. You'll remember he spoke to the rock in Exodus. But as Moses is the author of these, uh, it's not a surprise to see these themes going from book to book. The first generation was disallowed from the promised land. 
because of their unfaithfulness. The bronze serpent is another Sunday school story from the book of Numbers. And Balaam and the donkey, fascinating stuff. Uh, And then the raising up of Joshua and Caleb and how they were the, the two good ones, the faithful ones. Uh, some issues, background issues here, really no background issues. This is authored by Moses and by scribes. You see Mosaic foundation in, in uh, Numbers 33.2 and how God was speaking and re- revealing things to, to Moses. And then there are 41 instances in this book where it says the Lord spoke to Moses. So this is absolutely Moses' recollection of, um, of God's speaking to him, God's revelation, supernatural revelation, um, special revelation as we call it. And then you can see scribal assistance in chapter 1, verse 5, and 16. There's evidence in um, chapters chapter 12, 21, 32 of things that were clarified, spoken about Moses in the third person. Perhaps Moses could have spoken in the third person. That's not a problem. But there's also not a problem with saying that uh, Moses relayed these and the scribes were a part of the process of writing the book of Numbers. Um, so there you have the, the authorship as I said, two main sections. There's the negatively portrayed first generation in chapters 1 through 25, so starting with the census through chapter 5. And then there's the positively portrayed second generation, starting with the census in chapter 26, going through 36. If you want to divide it in terms of narrative rather than just those two general um, people groups, you can say Israel's at Sinai. This is the consecration of the first generation army. Here they are gathering at the uh, foot of Mount Sinai. They spent a year at the base of Mount Sinai. Uh, so they spent a, a full year there, and this is the conclusion of that time. And then at one point in chapter um, 11, end of chapter 10, end of chapter 11, they get up carrying the tabernacle, and they start the journey after a year of being there. And that's part two. Israel wanders toward Moab. And here we see that first generation army fail. And then there's Israel at Moab. Now flip the page over, and you'll see Moab on the right side, map four, the tribal allotments of Israel. You see um, Moab with uh, Mount Kir Hereset on the right of the east side of the Dead Sea. So you have Reuben, Gad, Reuben, Moab, Edom. Israel spent some time in Moab, ready to get to head into the land. You see Reuben and Gad there ended up settling on the east side of the Jordan. They didn't wait until they crossed into the promised land. So that's that's actually a part of the story of Numbers here. Uh, Edom down south, uh, there's there's a part in the, there's a story in Numbers where Israel wanted to pass through Edom. Uh, what's, what's the relationship between Israel and Edom? Esau's yeah, Edom is Esau's descendants. Israel is Jacob's descendants. So they have this long beef uh, that continues. And, and so you have uh, Edom not allowing them through. And so they, uh, that was a, a skirmish here in the book of Numbers. And then they camp in Moab for a while. Some people categorize what, what I call Israel wanders toward Moab. Some people call it the time at Kadesh Barnea. So if you flip back to the map, sorry, map on page three, or map three on the back, you see Sinai claimed by Egypt. You see the traditional site of Mount Sinai down at the, the southern end of the uh, Sinai Peninsula. You go up to the north-northeast, you see the wilderness of Paran, you see the wilderness of Zin, and between the two is Kadesh Barnea. So that is a major site for Israel's wanderings. Apparently they were there for some time. So with that in mind, let's flip back to the, uh, the structure here. If you want to talk about Israel at Sinai, the con- uh, middle column top, 
Israel at Sinai, part one of the book. This is the consecration of the uh, first generation army. It takes 10 chapters, for four chapters, the census, and then there's the consecration and the blessing and the departure for holy war in verse five. This holy war theme is a difficult one, and uh, we'll probably get into this more when we get into the actual conquest narratives in Joshua. But it's the idea that if God is waging war against wickedness, he's going to do it with the most holy um, instruments that he has. And so Israel, it's important that they remain distinct and separate uh, from the world. And so there are times in in Numbers where they intermarry. I I believe, uh, unless I'm mixing up my stories, uh, there's intermarriage and that causes problems. Uh, for for the nation, not because it is objectively wrong to marry interracially, but it was for Israel as a sign of holiness um, to be set apart from the from the nations. And so, especially when those nations are nations of pagan worship and pagan um, ungodliness, uh, in, in light of this whole context of of God giving the promised land and wiping out all wickedness. It's kind of the same question that we're going to face when we get to the ultimate promised land. Wait, how, how can God just really, how can hell be a thing? It seems so unjust, it seems so difficult, but it is purely just. It is the, the punishment that is due to wickedness in defense of God's people. And so coming into the promised land in some senses mirrors that last day when um, God's Justice is poured out against wickedness on behalf of his people whom he is preserving and giving life to. It's, it's, not the, um, it's not the message that the world thinks is a fun message, but it is a good, true message that we need to know and not be afraid of. Israel wanders toward Moab. So here they've taken it up, the, the tabernacle. They've picked up all their, um, their families and their camps, and they're, uh, they're headed out. And the first generation army fails because they rebel against God and Moses. And I just put some uh, passages here, some just quick summaries, right, in the, that paragraph. Their rebellion against God and Moses in chapters 11 through 20 includes uh, complaining against Moses, opposition to Moses. Aaron and um, Miriam tried to raise, you know, try, basically tried to coup against Moses. Uh, there's the quail. God gives the quail because they were complaining about the manna. There are the 12 spies. They went into the land and 10 were shaken in their boots saying, we can't do this. And two were saying, no, the land is beautiful. This is God's promised land. Let's, let's go take it. There was another rebellion against Moses. There was Moses' intercession for Israel. There's the promise and the reality of Israel's defeat by nations. So they actually lost a few of those. Um, l- more laws were given. There's Korah's rebellion, which was referenced in Jude. There's Aaron's staff budding which was then put into the Ark of the Covenant. There's the Levites and their laws, so you see more laws, striking the rock, and then Edom refuses passage, and then the deaths of Miriam and Aaron. Then there's a a passage of hope, and it comes with a bronze serpent, which is, again, a passage of judgment. But hope and judgment are always intertwined. And so uh, the remnant is preserved if they just look to the bronze serpent. That's crazy. Could you found that dichotomy not to make much sense. Oh, idolatrous. Yes. Yeah, it's... it's serpent's a symbol of Satan, right? Hmm. Or no? Yeah. <laughs> Generally, yes. I'm sorry so, for the serpent lovers 
No, it's okay. Um, I, yeah, go for it. So, um, throughout the Old Testament, especially, um, there are characters and people and places that are described in snaky terms. Um, so, like, uh, Goliath is described with his armor being full of scales and things like that. He's set up as the serpent against Israel. So, like, you're right. Like, why is the serpent there if all throughout we're being told that, like, serpents are bad, serpents are, like, Jacob is described as a serpent that's kind of shaped and redeemed towards what God wants him to be. Um, and so, yeah, I had this question for Jacob last week, like, why, why are we looking to a serpent? And why is it that looking to a serpent safe? Yes. Oh, I see, I see, okay. Um... I'm looking for, okay, it's John 3 is what I was looking for. Let me make sure this is what I'm thinking. Okay. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus in John 3, and he says, how, how am I born? And Jesus says, well, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. The wind there is the pneuma, the spirit, spirit's moving. That's how it is with everyone who's born. Everyone who's born again is born because the spirit has breathed life into them. That's regeneration. So Nicodemus said, how can these things be? Jesus said, are you the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? Uh, and, and we'll keep going down. Jesus says, if I have told you earthly things and you don't believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended, bless you. No one has ascended into heaven except the son of man. Um, except, excuse me, except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So that's the clear parallel that we all know from the New Testament saying Jesus is that serpent that was lifted up in the wilderness so that all who believe may have eternal life. Uh, I don't think that in Numbers, Numbers 21, we are given a, a depth of explanation of what is required to those who look to the serpent. Let's just, uh, is somebody willing to read that passage? Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9. Okay. Thank you. From Mount Hor, they set up. Uh, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look for bronze serpent and live. Okay. Jesus and he's raised up. 
I, I, yes, I think that's a, a good um, starting point. Where as as the serpent is the one who introduced into us the serpent, if, if perhaps it's our sin then being put on to the one who is raised up. Maybe I'm gonna I'm gonna pull this up right here. What is meant by look to the serpent though? Um, it may be. That's it. Yes, and and I, and I think in the same way that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, there's an implication that there's that comes from the heart. You believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In the same way, I think looking to the serpent is uh, more than just casting your eyes upon it. It's more than visual. It is this this trust. Oh. God said through Moses that if I look to this, I will be saved. There is that element of, of trusting that this is going to do something. I get the trust part. Yeah. I don't get the choice of a serpent. Yeah. Um, I'm with you. I, I don't understand that. Let me, let me look right here and see if there is. Okay, here we go. What is curious is the form. Well, let's, let's, let's start here. The final complaint episode. So this is the last of the, all the complaints because you saw them just complaining uh, as, as Rachel read. Um, here it says, The final complaint episode comes in the curious incident of the bronze serpent. The complaint itself is nondescript. The particular cause is not mentioned, but Israel's sentiment echoes a past grievance. They prefer the bread of slavery in Egypt over the bread of heaven in the wilderness. God's chastisement comes in the form of fiery serpents, while it has been debated whether fiery refers to their appearance, the pain of their bites, or both, the bites were proving fatal to some and of sufficient agony to produce a plea for forgiveness. So they were starting to see, all right, this is connected to our sins, so they cried out for forgiveness. What is curious is the form of the cure. God instructed Moses to cast a serpent out of bronze and to fasten it to a pole long enough for all to see it. Why would God use a symbol associated with entities such as Satan and Pharaoh as an object to... El- yeah, to elicit faith. Some have speculated that God intended not these negative associations, but different associations with healing, such as the staff of Esculapius from Greek mythology, still used today as a symbol for the healing arts. So you see that on ambulances. Is that what you were thinking? Yes. <laughs> um Oh, that's a good question. Let's let's keep reading. I don't know. Um, the, <laughs> this argument is implausible. The the medical symbol. This is implausible given the distance of that association and the nearness of these other associations, so central to the narrative of the Hebrew scriptures. In fact, it is the negative association with Pharaoh and secondarily Satan on which its meaning depends. But the key is in this situation in the form of its display. Moses was to display the bronze serpent, which represented all the fiery serpents in the act of biting the Israelites, not merely on a pole, but on a pike. It was hoisted up not as a sign of living hope, but as a symbol of the dead Pharaoh and the powerlessness of his serpentine gods. It was God's reminder of the status of the powers of Egypt, those powers to which the complainants wished to return. The gods of Egypt were dead, and those who worshipped them would become like them. The bites of the serpents were likely reminders of the sting of slavery, perhaps even the sting of the Egyptian whips. In contrast, the God of Israel was the living God who demonstrated his superiority over Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt and had sustained them in the wilderness for 40 years. So it's almost an 11th plague. Yeah, that's a good point. It's, it's like an 11th plague. 
against the wicked people who are not who have not trusted God. Yet there's that promise for the remnant for those who do look to this this mode of salvation that God has offered that reminds them of of the um, the judgment they deserve. I, I think that's I think that's a sad yeah that's a satisfactory answer for me. It was probably a detestable image too, given the snakes are detestable. Thus, as, as, as is the cross. And he had the pet snake. Oh, oh. <laughs> oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> as, as, is, as is the cross, which is just mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I think that's. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, so we will thank Michael J. Glodo. I don't know if that's how you say it. He's a reference there at the bottom. Um, he is the guy who wrote this chapter in the Miles Van Pelt um, summary. So we'll thank him for that explanation. Uh, and then there is Balak and Balaam. Oh my. Do we have time? No, we don't. Um, what'd you say? <laughs> um Maybe what we need to do is divide numbers into another week. Since Exodus kind of took a half a week, maybe Exodus got a week and a half, numbers will get a half and a week. You okay if we do that? Okay. It's right. Like Honestly, we have, there's no reason to rush through this other than it's a whole lot easier in logging the, you know, the recordings online to say this is... Yeah, that's right. It doesn't affect you. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> All right. Let's uh, let's stop there at the. It, this is a hopeful point. It's also a. Um, it shows you. Um, this wasn't a sugar-coated, happy jaunt through the wilderness. Uh, and and neither is today, as we are tempted on every side, as we are tempted to want to return to slavery in Egypt and slavery in the world and its um, less than real gods, truly um, satanic gods at work around us. You know, those those are the things we do not return to. We look to the one who has taken all that for us, and we are saved. So let's pray right now, and then we'll sing another song to close. <clears throat> Thank you, God, for your word. Even the book of Numbers, which seems to be such a confusing uh, book to read and um, oftentimes bores us, would we be reminded of how you were at work as the faithful God toward complaining people? And would that convict us? Because I know how much I complain. And I know how much I am not grateful for all you have done and all all that you are. So would you forgive us? Would we be reminded that uh, as you were faithful to your people Israel, so you are faithful to us? And would we not lose hope? Would we not lose sight of the one who was lifted up for us? And would we, um, would we know that in your time, uh, we will reach that promised land and we cannot wait for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.